is by kids listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to uh, any of you who've chosen to download the podcast. Many thanks for that. My name's Morris, and you're listening to, I think it's episode 20 of the Love That Album podcast. Uh, welcome if you're a first-time listener. Welcome if you're a regular listener. Uh, and on the show uh, this time around, we're going to be talking about, um, I don't know, I, 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 I think I've only heard a little bit about it, uh, an album called Elsie by, who was it, The Horrible... Bratwurst, or I don't know, I don't know. Um, Jeff, you might know a little bit about more than me. My two co-hosts for tonight, Jeff Smith and John. I don't belong to Wilco Stewart. Evening, gents. <laughs> Good evening, Morris. Evening, John. Evening, Jeff. Hi, guys. How are you doing? Jeff. Good to hear from you again. Yeah. Indeed, this this whole Skype thing. I I, I think you're now a convert, John. Yes. Um... Well, I had a moment of panic. I had to ask my daughter to um, dial, dial you in, so to speak. <laughs> your your fourteen year old daughter, and you work you work for a technology company, I believe. Yes. Right. Okay. Just just checking. <laughs> I'm, I'm masquerading there. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know how long you've been there, but you're obviously doing a fine job if they're holding you on. So you, know, you either know your stuff and just being being very elusive with us, or you're um, you're fooling them pretty well. Yeah. I think he uses the office as a as a front for his um CD copying and distribution um <laughs> business. Some some people that work with me, Jeff, would probably agree. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So yes, as as I just said a minute or two ago, we're uh, going to be talking about uh, the Horrible Crows uh, album Elsie. Which, um, if you're a regular listener to this show, more to the point, if you've been a regular listener to any episodes where uh, Jeff has been my partner, uh, will know that this is an album that he is madly passionate about. I thought, right, well, if you're that mad, that passionate about it, we really do have to uh, give it an episode all its own. And um, also, uh, John is familiar with this album as well. So um, uh, we'll be talking a little bit about that later on. But as I like to do, start off the show uh, with, um, well, a, a bit of you know, uh, what we're listening to. Uh, of late, but also a little bit of music news. So um, maybe we'll start off with uh, the music news. Now, um, you would have read in uh, recent days in the paper, it is reasonably big news, I was quite surprised in the local papers, that um, the uh, late, great John Peel, uh, his, um, his archives as such have been um, made available, uh, well, in a, in a virtual sort of way, his entire record collection, uh, until... Yeah, I think I think another a different group of his uh, records are going to be uh, made available for perusal in a virtual library online every week from now until the end of October, till all whatever twenty five thousand records are up. 
So um, uh, I, I'd probably like to ask both of you, gents, um, your your experience, your audio experience with uh, John Peel. Jeff, did um, did John Peel? What was he uh, syndicated in Scotland? Is that a dumb question? Oh yeah, I kind of grew up with John Peel on John Peel on the radio, the evening session with John Peel. I think he was on Radio One from sort of about seven o'clock till nine thirty or something every weekday evening, and mm. he, he played decent music. He didn't play the chart music. He didn't, you know, he didn't play what was what was on the Radio One playlist. You know, he played some good stuff, and he quite often had. Um, you know, bands in to do a session for him. Yes. Um, I don't know if they if they recorded it earlier in the day or if they were playing live. But um, and subsequently, they started releasing um, a lot of these as EPs, the the Peel sessions. Yep. Um, I've, I've got a good few of them. I've got you know off the top of my head, the Jesus and Mary Chain. I've got um, the Men They Couldn't Hang. Um, oh, but there's dozens and dozens and dozens of them. And you know, he was a really well respected, um, knowledgeable music. Um, I hesitate to call him a DJ, um, you know, but uh, yeah, his John Peel's music show was uh, was something that you know I wish I'd been a bit older and I could have gotten a lot more out of it than I did because um, the, the the climate sort of changed and and guys who didn't play the Radio One playlist kind of found themselves uh, out of a job for want of a better expression, really. Mm -hmm. And you know, he got shunt, shunted off sideways, and and that was the last we had of John Peel until he. He died, but if you speak to anyone you know who likes music from from the UK of my age and and, and older, they all know exactly who John Peel is, and they can probably all do passing in passing impression of him too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, we've we've heard um, uh, little bits and pieces from, as you say, from the CDs that that made it out here on um, you know, John Peel sessions and and uh, little audio clips. That, you know, a friend of mine, British friend of mine, had um, gone and you know, sent me tapes. Over the years, saying, "Oh, you've probably heard of this guy. You know, this is why he's so important." Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, look, I, I think I've got the uh, Billy Bragg sessions, and I remember reading, yeah. I don't know, maybe in the biography, a you know, really fantastic story about how uh, Billy Bragg got his attention. I think you know, Peel had said uh, something, you know, on one of the shows how he'd come in late and he hadn't had dinner, and geez, he really fancied—I don't know if it was a pizza or a curry or something like that—and Bragg, who was still you know, struggling to get himself known and heard, uh, called up and oh, came around, delivered him a pizza um, and a copy of his tape, <laughs> no doubt. Um, so, uh, you know, amazing what um, people did and you know, could do to get attention. Um, John, your experience, had you heard uh, anything you know, much yeah, look, from, from Peel? Probably where, where I came in with John Peel was... Um, I guess uh, what I've read over the years, arguably his favourite band, the band that he championed, uh, you know, possibly more than any other, was Manchester's The Fall. Yes. So I, I had a bit of a period where, you know, I thought, geez, I, I should be a, I should try, you know, check out The Fall. This is probably about ten years ago, and that's where I got quite familiar with Peel, and I read, um, I read at least. Uh, Two books on uh, Mark E. Smith and you know, John Peel's reference quite often, and um, you know, I guess growing up here, I, I didn't, I wasn't as lucky as Jeff, uh, and he wasn't part of our you know radio palette, but I always you know res respected him, and um, I guess it hammered home um, when Morris sent the link earlier this week about 
um, his entire vinyl collection uh, being put up. It's just it's just mind-boggling that you know we're gonna. Uh, I think they're gonna go sequentially through the alphabet, make available. And, uh, and what I was gonna say, what strikes me even from just looking earlier on today uh, at the A's, you know how how diverse it was. I mean, you know, there's obviously a whole lot of acts there that I've never heard of, but um, I, I you know I think it's. I think it's quite um, fair to say, even even from uh, you know just from the names, um, that it's not many people who'd have a record collection where ABBA shared the same shop as Accidental Suicide, um, or you know, the Accused sharing the, sh the shop with the with ABC. Um, so um, I mean, even if he only listened to a lot of these records, you know, once or twice, uh, but you know, as he already indicated, he was certainly a champion. Of uh, of uh, acts that he liked, and there was, you know, uh, I think he was being adventurous. But I get the impression from what I've heard of him and what I read about him that there was certainly no music snobbery. He just wanted to go out and try um, a whole lot of things that otherwise didn't get mainstream attention, or he wasn't ashamed to um, put in things that he did like that was from the mainstream. You know, hence Voulez Vu's position in the in the record collection. Oh, definitely. He also, um, he was also quite forthright, you know, but with his own opinions and his own tastes, and and he was never backwards about coming forward. If if he didn't like something, you know, he'd say, "Oh, we've had a lot of requests to play, you know, well, such and such an album by Spandau Ballet, but we won't be playing that on my show." <laughs> you know, that sort I, of. Jeez, I take that comment that sort of away. Wow. And I think he's. I, I don't think it was snobbery. I think it was just you know he, he realized that there was. As Steve Earle once said, there are two types of music. There's good music and there's bad music. Mm, mm. You were going to say, John? I was just going to say, I think what I always admired about, about him from afar is that, you know, um, his appearance, um, his age, he, the type of music he championed, you know, was quite um, unlikely. And uh, I just found him a very, um, you know, I think uh, he was he seems to be synonymous with, I guess, some of the uprising against Thatcherism and some of those bands that, you know, tried to deconstruct, you know, probably just after the punk movement. Oh. And I, I always loved his uh, quote, which I'm probably just about to stuff up and get wrong, where he, <laughs> where he, talk, where he talked about the fall and he said, ah, the fall goes, always changing and always the same. Well, And, of course, you know, they released about... 60 albums <laughs> so he could that same um quote could nearly have applied for status quo as well couldn't it yes <laughs> except always staying the same always staying the same <laughs> but, um okay uh, actually so another question i wanted to put to you jeff was um i guess the other big music figure in um but not not on radio in uh, in England, I guess it was uh, Whistling Bob Harris and the the Grey Whistle Test. Now, was he uh, someone who had? Um, did he just play or put on the show whoever was around, or did he actually have a say or um, sort of like try to facilitate people's tastes in in a similar way to John Peel? Um, I don't know an awful lot about the old Grey Whistle Test. I have to say it was it was oh, slightly okay. before my time. Right. I remember it. I remember it being on um, BBC Two at something like you know eleven, eleven thirty at night. It may have been a Friday night, and 
you know, when I was sort of 12, 13 years old, I was supposed to be tucked up in bed long before then. <laughs> But, uh, you know, because I couldn't get up, and, and we only had one TV in the house in those days, you know, black and white, you had to wind it up. But um, <laughs> I couldn't sneak down the stairs and watch the old grey whistle test. I had to sit and listen to, uh, you know, Radio Caroline and what have you under the bedclothes. So, yes. uh, you know, so, so, but I mean, I have obviously seen, uh, I've seen, you know, archive footage of, of the old grey whistle test, and they changed it to just the whistle test after uh, Whistling Bob moved on, and um, it, it became much more of a, here's, an, here's another excuse to show some popular music kind of show, you know, it kind of deviated from what I get the feeling it had always been about, which was, which was more showcasing, again, not mainstream, necessarily mainstream music. I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of the popular stuff on. I just remember seeing, you know, old archive footage of, you know, bands like Led Zeppelin and The Who and, mm. you know, for that era stuff. Um, I do know that they did an old grey whistle test special on uh oh what's his name guy from oh, new jersey some sort of spring spring springboard or something spring, springbok yeah and, and you yeah. know but they come but when they did a, a special on 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 somebody on a band or an artist it was you know about two and a half hours long and it really did it in depth it didn't just do the you know he, here's his early stuff here's his late stuff and here's what's top of the pops now you know mm -hmm. okay um all right. Well, so um, anyway, just probably should give a uh, an indication of the um, uh, the website address for this John Peel record collection. I mean, probably the easiest thing is to go to Google and type in John Peel record collection. It'll take you straight there. But um, otherwise, if you're a bit lazy, uh, here it is. It's uh, the space that all one word the space dot org forward slash content forward slash s Zero 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 zero. That's five zeros for you, as in the letter U. So S zero 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 for you forward slash albums. And it's not just um, the record collection that you get. There's also um, you, you see a photo, presumably of his room at home, and you know you, you click on various things. So you might click on um, uh, a crate, which is a link to the record collection, which is the feature that's been getting all the news uh, this week. There's, um, you click on a mixing desk on the table and you um, can get various samples of audio from uh, the Peel session. So various acts who played, you know, so acts like, you know, The Damned and The Jam and Ian Dury and Squeeze. Um, there's a tape deck for um, bits of audio from his radio shows. And so like more uh, Peel himself. Uh, speaking to the audience, and so you get a bit of a feel about how he sounded and what he was all about, if you hadn't heard. And there's a photos section. Um, so a really quite comprehensive site. I think it might actually have been put together by the BBC itself. So um, I'd, I'd really urge you to go uh, look this up. It's really uh, quite wonderful, very special, and um, it'll be interesting to see how it unfolds over the next six months until... Uh, the whole record collection is complete. At the moment, there's only VAs, so um, keep, yeah, just, keep an eye just for that. One last fact on uh, on John Peel that, that I really appreciate. Yep. Um, widely reported that his favourite single, his favourite 45 of all time, was uh, Teenage Kicks by The Undertones. So you can't go far wrong with a man like that. No, you've got to respect the, that, that opinion. All right. So, um, okay, so that's about enough of uh, uh, what's in John Peel's record collection. So um, 
hand it over to you guys. What's been in your record collection, or what's what have you been playing on your record or CD player or other audio player of your choice over the last couple of weeks? Don't rush in. Well, I was going to throw here's a here's a bit of a weird one. I um, watched a movie called Another Earth. Oh yes. Um, it's a young lady um, uh, accidentally kills a pregnant mother and son in a car crash, and um, at the same time, a parallel Earth appears in the night sky. So, yeah, you know, it's a, it's a bit of a stretch. It's it's got a bit of a sci-fi theme, but yes, and mainly a um, yeah, it's a survivor's story and one of guilt and you know redemption, etc. But very you know un, un, unusual for me because it's probably it's music so far removed from you know what i guess the meat and potatoes rock and roll and and some of the punk stuff i like but there's a there's a band there's a it's a there's a somewhat ambient electronica i, I can't describe it uh sound a uh, band that comprised the guts of the soundtrack called fall on your sword mm. um and it's just that's just something I've been listening to over the last couple of weeks. Okay. Really, really, you know, different stuff, but it just seemed to, you know, probably, probably, uh, you know, if you listen to it without the context of the movie, it, it may be a little bit hard, but uh, just worked perfectly for the movie. So that's uh, something different I've uh, been listening to lately. Okay. What else? A um, couple of, again, my favourite thing, you know, finding. You know, one artist connects, you know, to another one that, you know, people that I've never heard of before. Um, a, ch a chap from, I think he's from Texas, called Adam Carroll. Mm -hmm. um, very, like, a, a, he's a young man, probably he's probably in his mid-30s. He, he, um, but he seems to have a uh, songwriting style um, quite close to John Prine. You know, he's got the wry observations, um, uh, quite a bit of wit about his songwriting, so... He's, he's been a bit of a re revelation. Mm -hmm. Another artist, again, um, an English artist, uh, sort of uh, roots or country, um, that um, very hard to describe, called Jinder. And I, but I think I got that via a recommendation in the other artists, sorry, in the Endless Jukebox section in um, Greasy Lake. So they're just sort of a couple of way out there things um in amongst i think um um found a couple of web re resources jeff you'll be proud of me I, I think i'm actually slowly getting drawn into the downloading community and um se seem to be able to pick the eyes out of each springsteen concert and within three days you know there's quite a few resources and what i've been doing is just you know getting the tour premieres yeah um, and you know, like you know, we can, you know, the, I guess the main construct of the of, of the set list, uh, you know, we've got a very good quality recording in the Apollo broadcast. But I've really enjoyed, you know, some of the things that Springsteen has done. You know, again, as the even though he's got such a large uh, band, he's really mixed it up. Um, he played uh, earlier this week, the weight. Um, started off acoustic in tribute to Levon Helm, of course. Mm. And um, I think... Perfect. Yeah, and, and blew me away. Um, a very, very early 70s um, 
outtake called The Bishop Danced. Yeah, I love that song. I couldn't believe it when I read that that had been played. I, I haven't I haven't downloaded it yet, but it's it's on the list. Yeah, well, I, I downloaded that as recently as last night and had a listen to it. And, and you know, crazy things like he came out, um, I forget what city he was in, but he came out an hour before his show um, mm. with some people and did an acoustic um, version of For You. Oh, wow. Yeah. Fantastic. So, um, Why I guess... Why do it on stage? I think, Jeff, you, you mentioned that's something that, that you kind of did in the, if not the magic, the working on the dream tour. You, you, you know, all these shows seem to, be, seem to be downloadable, you know, 24 to 48 hours after they happen. But it's, you can actually make a nice little playlist of all the, you know, the, um, you know, the different, uh, the odd songs that he throws in. Yeah, that's the odds and ends and the rarities and the the ones where you know he has occasional special guests on stage, like you know the, the usual appearances of Tom Morello and people like that. Yes, yep. You pretty much have to wait though through to um, uh, you know, the end or at least very late in the tour to be able to put a compilation like that together. True. Mm. But uh, I, I know that over a couple of the more recent tours, you know, like the uh, the Magic tour and. And uh, the Sega Sessions tour, there was certainly like those multi-disc sets of um, you know all all unique songs that appeared over the um, over the course of the tour. Some uh, really excellent stuff. So you got the rarities along with the songs that he played every show. And yeah. I guess some, and the, I guess one not not mainstream, but I guess you know those names that you know probably uh, maybe only their families know those other artists I spoke to. But the chap that I've been sort of um, tinkering around the edges with over the last few years, Lee Ronaldo of mm -hmm. uh, Dinosaur Junior fame. Yep. I actually got his Between the Times and the Tides album, and I'm very, very impressed. Mm -hmm. So I, I dug back into his catalogue and got an album, mainly because I just love the title, Amarillo Ramp for Robert <laughs> Smithson. Don't know what it means, but as I say, great, <laughs> great title. And, um, yeah, Lee Ronaldo... Um, I guess one of the one of the um, noise experimenters, and you know, one uh, I guess one of the great guitarists of his generation. Um, but he seems to be a bit of an eclectic fellow, and his albums have everything from spoken word to you know, thirty-two minute instrumentals. But um, yeah, I kind I kind of um, like what I'm hearing so far. Okay, so um, so Jeff, what can you tell us what you've been listening to? Um, well, been, uh, yeah, I've been listening to a bit of, bit of Springsteen, obviously, keeping up, like John mentioned, with some, some of the developments on the, the tour and, um, enjoying what I'm, what I'm hearing. Looking forward to, uh, to catching some of that live later in the year. Um, I've been listening to, um, I've already mentioned the wonderfully named The Men They Couldn't Hang. Mm. I'd, like to, I'd like to add another brilliant, brilliantly named band, The Airborne Toxic Event. Mm. Um, I hope they spent. I hope they spent more time on um, on the music than they have on on the title. Yeah, that would be <laughs> yeah the, the the music's really good. I mean, unfortunately, I can't really tell you an awful lot about it. It's one of those ones I downloaded, shoved it on the iPod. Um, I can I can't even really guess the names of the albums um, or the songs. Just it's kind of in there. It sounds a bit like the Wallflowers. It sounds a bit like Arcade Fire. Um, but it's got something. Well, it's got a violin for a start, and you know, it's, it, 
it's just good music. I just I just really like it. And you know, if you if you've got a bit of time on your hands and nothing better to do, um, have yourself an airborne toxic event. You know. Um, <laughs> Obviously, I've been listening to, um, I spoke to Morris through the week, and I've been listening to um, a lot of the much more recent stuff in Steve Earle's catalogue. Um, I, was, I was fortunate enough to see him playing live in Melbourne um, towards the end of last month um, on, a, on a solo uh, show. Um, and a lot of the songs that I sort of, yeah, yeah, Steve, okay, fair enough, you know, when I've been listening to them on CD, he really brought them to life and really did something different with, you know, really changed them for me. And I've gone back and I've, I've checked out albums like Jerusalem and The Revolution Starts Now, and, and, and there's a lot of really great stuff on there that I'd missed, mm. including his most his most recent CD, um, was I'll Never Get Out of This Place Alive, um, which there was a lot of songs on there which I'd thought, yeah, yeah, Steve, you know, you're in love with your wife, great, you know, write some songs to get out of it. So, which, uh, sorry to interrupt. Which one was which album did he um, record? In fact, did he record um, a version of uh, "Way Down in the Hole," which is uh, what we hear as the opening theme for season five of The Wire? I presume he sort of recorded that for an album. I couldn't tell you if that's on an album or not. Actually, okay. uh, there's a, a double CD collection of outtakes and and bits and pieces. Uh, circulating at the moment called Magnetized Motherfuckers. Am I allowed to say that on a podcast? Uh, no, you can't say motherfucker on the podcast, no. Oh, no I won't say, I won't say again then. I've, um, I've, I've had that for a while. That's actually been around for a while. I've got a, I've got a copy of that somewhere, so um, we'll talk. Yeah, but, so but it's you, not on that. Yeah. Uh, so I've been, uh, yeah, I've been uh, catching up with some some Steve Earle, reacquainting myself with some of some of his back catalogue. And... Um, <laughs> Almost to the stage where I I went back and I looked at you know Exit Zero and Guitar Town and I I, I really can't listen to them at the moment. They're just it's not like the same it's like not the same artist for me if you know what I mean. Right. Um, great songs, great albums. I love them to death and I will come back to them and of course I'll listen to them again. But you know just at the moment I you know I'm only hearing Tom Ames Prayer and John Walker's Blues and you know these kinds of songs and and his um his his, his album Towns which did absolutely nothing for me when he released it, but you know now I'm 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 really getting into uh, you know Pancho and Lefty and all these songs. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I, I guess it's it, just quality songwriting, you know. Wasn't it somewhere? I I think I remember a quote from Steve Earle once where he said that you know Towns Van Zant was the greatest songwriter who ever lived, and he'd happily stand on Bob Dylan's coffee table in his cowboy boots and make that declaration. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. Okay. So, anything else? Uh, and again, for the same reason, some of the uh, some of the John Hyatt stuff. I saw him live with the Combo. Um, I think two nights after, I saw Steve Earle in the same venue, and you know, he, he just rocked the joint as you would expect from from John Hyatt. Yep. He was on he was on great form and uh, played a lot of his. Um, what you would say lesser popular stuff, a um, couple of songs off Master of Disaster, and you know albums that kind of went by the wayside a lot. Mm. So you know, I went back and I dug out Master of Disaster. I thought, oh, I'll play that again. And I tell you what, there's some pretty good songs on there. You know, did he, did he play know. anything off Little Head? I can't remember that he did. I don't <laughs> know Little Head, but you know, um, the Master of Disaster was in there and. 
yeah, there was a there was a few good ones in there, and you know, I'm quite pleased that you know occasionally you get the chance to. I guess that's why Supply the Tour as well, isn't it, to sort of revitalise that interest in them, and it certainly worked for me in the case of these two artists, who I would always list as you know, certainly if somebody said you know your top top five artists, they mm. would be there, you know. And, you know, I just felt felt a bit weird going back and sort of going, I missed this first time. How did, how could I have overlooked that? That's a fantastic song. You know? mm, mm, mm. So I would urge everybody, you know, if there's albums by artists that you like that you think that's not a very good album and you've never listened to it for years, dig them out, listen again. Mm, yep. Oh well, that's that's the beauty of collections like ours. They're large enough that we can do that. We can still sort of find something and. You know, maybe think, well, why did we like this in the first place? Or you know, remind ourselves, oh, yeah, this is why we like this. Why hasn't this been in, in my life mm. uh, in more recent times? I think Jeff's comment's right. I think the reason, I think he, I think it is almost two different artists because of, um, you know, his, in, his imprisonment. Um, uh, uh, there's the pre-imprisonment and then his, his uh, I guess, his rebirth without sounding too corny, where he, um, you know, through he, he, uh, through his drug dependency and, uh, and, and he, and it seemed to be co co coincide with an incredible creative period. Mm. Uh, well, I mean, post prison is where I picked up on him. I, I had no interest in anything. I mean, maybe I ought to be, uh, giving some of that early, you know, guitar town and, and, and those albums a bit of a try, but really, like, I think, uh, trainer coming was where I, um, uh, jumped on board and, and thought, wow, you know, this guy's absolutely fantastic. And, um, you know, what else can he do? And, uh, I recommend The Hard Way, even though that album was probably, you know, getting close to, you know, his lowest depths, but it's a oh. very, um, very tough album. So when you say lowest depths, you mean because of, uh, his drug Just, use? Not, not musically. Yeah. No, not musically, but personally. Yeah. And, and and I think I remember reading an incredible uh, review in the Rolling Stone Record Guide, which used to be a thick tome that um, had come out. And not not long after The Hard Way, I think it was 1991, he released this great titled uh, live album called Shut Up and Die Like an Elevator. And um, the, the reviewer said, you know, and this was before, you know, he'd, he'd come out the other side, you know, we think we're going very close to losing Steve Earle. And I think it did come that close. You know, he, he often talks about the story that the judge that actually threw him into prison literally saved his life. Yeah. Mm. And I think, I think that's, that's what struck me when Jeff said, because I, I, I certainly, I, I came into, uh, Steve Earl around about, uh, the hard way. I didn't really, I, I didn't mind Copperhead Road, but I found it probably, I still think it's probably one of his weakest albums, even though it's by far his greatest seller. But um, I, I definitely, um, I, one of my greatest experiences was I saw him in Dublin in 1996, and it would have only been, if not if not weeks, only a couple of months after he got out of jail. And you know, he was very overweight, um, very menacing, but it put it on an, on an incredible show. I wonder if he ever had that opportunity in prison. Mm. Done a Johnny Cash. <laughs> All right. Um, I'll give a couple of quick things I've been listening to over the last week or so. Um, very recently, I sort of worked out that you know um, my record co or CD collection, I could say, I had a glaring omission. I had, apart from like a handful of songs 
on um, a couple of R&B compilations. I had nothing from Curtis Mayfield. Um, so I went and purchased uh, this great two CD set. Actually, it was a bit of a bargain basement price, really, I think about $15, but uh, a great double CD set uh, just called Pusher Man. And um, it, it's you know covering you know, work from 1972 all the way through to 1990. So, you know, he, you know all his... Uh, solo his solo career um and uh oh, yeah, there's some great songs on here a bit you know there's there's a few things from uh, uh the disco era and you know maybe early 80s which i find you know that that lynn drum sound which I've ne has never appealed to me but even those songs um have something to recommend and you can certainly see that uh people like prince probably uh, uh listen to a lot of curtis mayfield in their uh, formative years um but uh and there's for me there's very few singers who i think can you know do what he did in terms of the singing in terms of uh that ongoing falsetto voice i probably with a lot of people i'd find it annoying but for some reason curtis mayfield always seemed to make it work um so yeah that's a is a great two cd set pusher man uh, i'm sure there's a, like a lot of anthologies doing the rounds but this one, I think, is dated uh, 2011, so uh, probably pretty easy to pick up around the traps. Um, now, uh, you were talking before about you know, reacquainting yourself with something you hadn't listened to in a long while. Um, and um, this is an album I, have, I haven't listened to in quite a number of years uh, by an American singer-songwriter. I guess, you know, you'd probably put him in the, you know, the songwriter's bracket, but there's something a little bit more than that. This guy's called Martin Sexton. Uh, he started out like as an independent, did a couple of albums for uh, Atlantic Records. I guess he never sold as many records, never really quite broke into the mainstream, but he always, I guess, has had a very healthy cult following. Um, and he actually, I think he came at least, certainly once to Australia. I saw him in Melbourne at uh, the Long Lamented Continental Cafe. Um, and... Uh, I couldn't believe, I think I read a review in the Australian newspaper and they said he doesn't have a conventionally good voice. Um, and I just took complete issue with that. This guy's voice is mesmerizing. I mean, when he, 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 know, he has a healthy sense of dynamic, uh, knows how to, um, keep it, keep it, uh, on the bubble. But when he pushes forward, he's got a voice like, like no one else and one of those guys who like within you know a, a, a half a second you know it's him um and i i guess like you know his his music like uh, i guess a lot of americana type artists you know it straddles you know the the folk and country and and you know the uh, r&b and funk you know, elements of all of this but really he does it in a way like few other artists actually do um, having said that, uh, like he's he's got some really great songwriting uh, done over um, these couple of albums. Oh, I've got about three or four albums. One called Black Sheep, uh, the, and both of his uh, Atlantic records, um, uh, The American and Wonder Bar. And like his best songwriting is absolutely fantastic, comparable with with anyone who we might love. But um, there are some ordinary songs out there as well. But, um, but yeah, I've been listening over the last week to his album, The American, which was the first of his albums for Atlantic. And I think this came out, I don't know, about 2002, 2003. 
Um, if you haven't heard it, I'd recommend it. There's um, a couple of songs on it. Uh, one called My Maria, the other one called Candy. Uh, and like Candy in particular, lyrically, is absolutely devastating. Um, I'd, I'd really urge, if you haven't heard him, uh, go seek him out. He, I actually went and looked up just to see what he's been doing recently. And there's a song called Sugar Coating, um, which is his take on you know, America post 9-11, but sort of done in a fairly humorous way. Look at the, look at the video clip. Uh, Martin Sexton, Sugar Coating. It's really quite a funny video clip. Um, uh, so, um, so yeah, anyway, I've been listening to a bit of him over the last week and probably as far removed as you can get from that. Uh, I've been listening to um, a CD which has the first EP and I think the second album by The Cramps. Uh, the first EP was called Gravest Hits and their second album was called Psychedelic Jungle. Um, and I, I just love this. Um, they, they have a version of uh, Surf and Bird, originally made famous by The Trashman, that just goes on and on. Um, it's a lot of fun. Uh, and if you sort of like that uh, rockabilly style, uh, garage type thing, then, um, these guys are for you. It's just, yeah. Um, I, I've got a few of their albums. I haven't played them in a long while, but I dragged this one out and yeah, it's just, yeah, hell of a lot of fun. Uh, either of you fans of the Cramps or familiar? Not, I'm not that knowledgeable on the Morris. I've heard, I've read a lot about them. I, I think I understand their importance, um, in history, but, um, no, I've never really, um, I guess, taken the time. Yeah, look, they'd, they'd be worth they'd be worth uh, your time to get one or two of their albums. I know that you know, opinion varies amongst the fans. What what are the good ones? What are not? But I mean, look, I've only got about four of their albums, so and every one of those I love. So I think a date with Elvis is one of the more well known ones. Mm. Um, and and uh, uh, I think um, Justin those on the host of Mondo Film podcast you know says that that's their weakest effort but you know i i can't find fault with it i love it so um it's all yeah i, I guess all subjective but um but yeah check them out if, um, if you like that sort of uh, garage rockabilly type sound they did a really good job with it all right anyway so we're at the 38 minute mark and we've um, not touched on our um uh the, the focus of uh, this uh episode which is going to be the horrible Nancy's, or I don't know, I can't remember who they call. Well, I'll look it up while we're on the break. Um, uh, so, okay, anyway, we're going to just take a quick break now. And uh, Jeff, John, and I will be talking about um, the Horrible Crows album, Elsie. You're listening to Love That Album. We'll be back in a minute. GGTMC Live for you, Fresh Yeah. Big Willie and the Samurai are at your service, breaking films down and turning them around, giving recommendations that are always on point. Visit ggtmc.com for more information. The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to the trash since 1977. And we're back from break. Uh, welcome to uh, the central part of this album's, of this album, of this episode uh, of Love That Album, episode 20. We're going to be talking about the Horrible Crows uh, album, Elsie. Uh, this is an album which, as I mentioned earlier on in the show, that um, uh, Jeff is passionate about. And if you've been listening to uh, the show regularly, or at least 
Jeff's contributions to the show, you'll know that um, uh, this is one he's uh, absolutely crazy about. And I figured, well, I've gone and imposed my tastes. <laughs> well, maybe I mean, he agreed, but you know, but you know, I, I've gone and imposed what albums we should be doing over the course of this show. So, all right, well, time for uh, Jeff to pick something. Uh, and especially, I felt guilty after making him go ahead with that Suzanne Vega album. It was the one that he didn't think it was. So, um, so here we are talking about um, this album this time. Okay, so um, I get you guys want me to talk about this from from the start. Well, I think it would be interesting, Morris, to, as a as a sort of um, Brian Fallon kind of novice to, to get your uh, your feeling on on the uh, the horrible crows as a as a whole, and you know if you have any songs stood out, either good or bad or indifferent for you. Right. Well, okay. I'll, I'll leave individual songs to while we're going through the whole discussion. Once I get some of your uh, respective thoughts, and I might chime in and say, "Right, a good example of this will be that song." But um, okay, look, I went and wrote out all my notes in, uh, in over the last couple of weeks uh, for this album. You know, so, like, going song by song as I do, um, and you know, I had a particular opinion about the album, and then. Earlier on today, uh, it's a Sunday as we are recording this, uh, so first thing Sunday morning I take my daughter to uh, play basketball, so I thought, look, you know, while she's playing the game, I'll bring the iPod with me and give one final listen to see if I can come up with any new thoughts. And I wouldn't quite say I saw the album in a completely different light to how I've been doing it, but it has changed a bit. So, okay, so basically... Up until now, the, the way how I go through these shows, as you know, I'm fairly lyric heavy, sometimes maybe to the detriment of, uh, of the music. Um, and so it was, uh, I, I probably spent a good chunk of time reading through the lyrics of this album while listening to, um, listening to the songs. And, um, Okay, so I'll give a little bit of a musical thing. So I, I, the first two or three songs on the album sounded to me like mid-1980s U2. And for me, that's not a good thing. I hate U2 with a passion. Um, so that was not a great place to start. And my, um, unlike the two of you, I didn't have a vested interest in the Gaslight Anthem. So um, my reason for wanting to like this was, you know, I, you know, I did a little bit of the research. I know that you guys liked it a lot and certainly like all the, all the uh, reviews that I'd read on the internet, everyone seemed to like it. So I was, you know, listening to this. And I'm thinking, well, what is this? I'm not getting it. Is this the case of the emperor's new clothes or am I just missing something here? And a lot of the lyrics on the one hand, I thought a, a lot of what Fallon's doing here and maybe you can sort of like say whether this follows into, uh, the gaslight anthem. Uh, material as well, but a lot of the lyrics seem to be focused on um, his his misery of uh, losing a partner or someone not being in love with him, which you know is pretty much the, the, the entire catalogue of guys like Chris Isaac and Roy Orbison, and yet neither of them annoyed me the way, and I have to use the word annoyed, the way how Brian Fallon's lyrics did here. Um, there's a lot. Like, I mean, just about in every song, um, a lot of him making references to heaven and hell and, and the angels and, um, and, uh, the afterlife and, and just, 
I mean, you know, on a couple of songs, fine and fair, but a lot of it seemed quite pretentious to me. Uh, I don't know if there's a lot of people out there or anyone out there who's listening to this who are going to be um, tuning away or even you know, indeed you two guys who might never want to work with me again for having said that. I, I'd be really regretful of that. But that was just my first impression. Um, and today, as I said, you know, I took the album with me or took the iPod with me to listen to while watching my daughter's basketball match. And I thought, right, don't pay attention to the lyrics. Just listen to the album for, as it was. And... I still don't think that the music was particularly uh, a great revelation, but I would say that, I don't know for lack of a better term, it was solid. Um, I, I didn't find a lot of it really particularly exciting. I just, I mean, a lot of the music was intense, and I'll probably give specific examples as we go along through the songs. But um, I, I guess, sorry, the lyrics, okay, a lot of the lyrics were intense, as I said before, but it seemed like sometimes the music... There are you know, a few songs which are far more laid back, which maybe didn't match the intensity of the lyrics. And I'd be just wondering if um, you know, Fallon might be best served with having, you know, I don't know, does he have another uh, person in the band who writes, shares the lyrics with him, or is this like his personal pet project? Well, I think it's his personal pet project. But I guess um, what I only really... I only, I only realised in the last couple of weeks when we, you know, decided to do this show, and I mean, Jeff probably knew this all along, but he, the, the album was a, in partnership with the Gaslight Anthems guitar tech, mm. a gentleman mm. by the name of Ian Perkins, and and that was only, I, I, I really, I guess when the album came out, the first thing I asked was why, you know, because he, I guess he, that he was on a he and they were on an incredible run, you know, I guess, and one of the things I was going to ask you guys, uh, you know, do we think the Gaslight Anthem are, are, are trying this, you know, for want of a better word, crossover from, um, and, and the thing I loved about, about them as a band and about Fallon as an individual, you know, they, um, when I, I think I read a review on their, about their first album, sink or swim and they said oh yeah these guys are out of the north new jersey punk scene and i went oh okay so that means there must be a south new jersey punk scene as well and i thought that quite funny but um um yeah i think i i think he's the sole songwriter uh jeff yeah as far as i know i think um you know he, he's um i guess he he uh, models himself on springsteen I did some reading during the week uh, just to get a. F uh, I tried to get a bit of a feel for what the press was like, and and uh, and I found this one strange that he one of his ambitions is to um, you know to one day you know um, I guess not strange in some regard, but that he, that and, and he may not have been, he may have been misquoted that he wants to be have a Springsteen like um, success or um, legacy. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, I've read that. I think he also wants to be Tom Waits as well. Yes, and and <laughs> that's what this album, you know, was um, his uh, time out. They said to be a bit of Tom Waits and a bit of Nick Cave. But so can I just I just want to interject something there because you okay? Well, you mentioned both those. I can see the Nick Cave reference working maybe with the lyrics, although in my opinion, not as not as great as Nick Cave's lyrics. 
but the Tom Waits reference, is, is that because of the, the growly voice or, or, or for someone, what, what, is there another reason? Well, I think it's because he manages to balance the, um, you mentioned it yourself and um, I've yet to ask John towards the end if, if we're going to actually have you on the show again, Morris. But um, <laughs> you make yourself the, the balance between, you know, a lot of his lyrics are sort of very, very miserable, which yes. uh, I think you can you can probably uh, hold up to Tom Waits as well. But um, I think what he does slightly different ways, he manages to, to bring in that kind of, it's all utterly miserable, it's all completely horrible, but there's there's a hope for redemption there somewhere. But Tom Waits is funny. Tom Waits has a sense of humour. Brian Fallon doesn't. Or at least he's not putting it in these songs. Well, you could say Suzanne Vega has a sense of humour because she records music, but, you know, I guess humour's all in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> you know, no, I, I, do, I do agree, I do agree, but, you know, I think the, I, th I think it's probably the... The idea of wanting to be like Tom Waits is probably something to do with longevity and being credible. <laughs> or maybe wanting to smoke too much and still being able to live and tell the tale. No, there was always that. Yeah. Alright, well, so you know, we've, we've gone and given our um, uh, initial thoughts, so tell us, you know, why is it that you're so passionate about this album? Um, it just works. It just works for me. That's something that I've said about a lot of music. Um, and, I, and I've mentioned, you know, I, I, how I got the album to start with. Um, it was one that I, I saw in the, the Gaslight Anthem email newsletter that was being released, and I thought, oh, I'll maybe look into that. Um, eventually ordered it. It came. Um, but it's quite a nice, uh, quite a nicely packaged little album, and uh, I stuck it on the list and ignored it for a, for a long time. And then one day, put it in the, put it on in the car. And from you know the opening, the opening chord, it was sort of like, wow, you know, this is this is really amazing stuff. And um, I guess when I heard it, it relates again to sort of you know what's going through my head and what's happening in my life, and it just sort of seemed to fit that stage. Um, the idea that you know some of his songs, it's all they're all. You said about um, songs about breaking up and somebody doesn't love him and all the rest of it. I think, yeah, that's a part of it, but for me, I think it's mistakes in relationships. Mm. It, 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 it's it's muck-ups that he's done, but he's now he's sort of identified them, and he knows not to do them again, but then he comes back to it and goes, yeah, but it still hurts like hell, you know? And that's that's the kind of the, the stage I was at that, you know, I was kind of identifying with a lot of that kind of message that I was, I was getting from him. Um, and again, an awful lot of religious, like you mentioned, religious sort of, um, I want to say iconography, but that's completely the wrong word. Imagery, that's the word. Mm. I mean, Brian Fallon is, if you, if you read anything about him, is a very, very religious Christian guy, um, you know, despite all the tattoos and the swearing. Well, uh, you know, um, so, you know, I guess, and he's only, what, he was born in 1980, so that makes him not very old. Um, um, so, you know, he's, he's only writing from experience, which is all you can ask a, a, a writer to do. You know, you can't ask someone like Brian Fallon to write with the experience of, say, a Tom Waits or a Bruce Springsteen or a Nick Cave. Mm. Not for another 20 years, anyway. You know, if you look back at some of the some of the stuff that, that these guys were putting out in their very, very young days, um, you know, some of it not so good. Um, but I think Brian Fallon manages to um, 
to stay sort of ahead of the game. You know, I think he's. I think I've discussed with John before that we're kind of thinking maybe maybe sort of old, older before his time. You know, our maturity there, um, the ability to to switch from one track to the next where he he can break your heart and the next one have you standing on the table rocking your you know rocking the lights out. Mm. Uh, you know, and I've I've been lucky enough to see the Gaslight Anthem very briefly live. They played a few songs in support of Social Distortion here in Melbourne. And they, they were just absolutely fantastic, you know. And and they could do that. He, he could take the acoustic guitar, play one song, you know, that had people jumping off the balcony to their death. You know, then then the, the rest of the band would join in, and, and you know, the, the roof was coming off the place. You know. Yeah, look, I mean, that's that's one thing I will acknowledge. I mean, I did a little bit of um, uh, looking up on YouTube just to see you know, whether someone had gone and taken any. Um, any footage of them at a gig, you know, using whatever video cam or their iPhone or whatever it is, and there's plenty of it up there. And, um, you know, I have to say, from a live perspective, if I don't understand what he's singing, um, <laughs> I, I think musical, I, I think, right, okay, in a live sense, they have the chops. Um, and I, I, I guess another thing I'll say in the album's favour is, which probably counters to what we were speaking you know, a couple of shows back about the Springsteen album. Um, I think the production work, you know, I mean, apart from maybe some of the Larry Mullen style drumming on the first you know, couple of tracks, I don't think that it's over overproduced. I think that um, uh, for what these songs are, uh, I, I think the production style suits and musically, once again, walking away from the lyrics a little bit, musically, uh, the production style suits the music very well. So, um, I, I, I've not come into this saying I hate this album, far from it. But it's still going to take some time to convince me. And I don't know, maybe if he changes some of the words to I, I woke up this morning and took a dump, or uh, I don't know, maybe that'll speak to me better. I don't know. But um, I think too many, too many songs of, um, uh, you know, the angels glance down. And, I mean, I. I I'm, I'm, I'm going to go through go through my notes. I know that there was somewhere where he sings. I think. Oh, that's right. Okay, so I, I want to give a reference to um, or give an example of the, the song "Crush." And, mm -hmm. um, like on, on, so he's got I think about two or three voices on this on this album. He has um, like his really low, rumbling, intense voice. He's got something there in the middle, and he's got this gargling, gravelly sort of voice, which sounds. Not so much to me like Tom Waits, but more like Brian Johnson from ACDC. And he employs that on this song, Crash, which um, I think, like, it's a lyric I don't actually mind. It's one of the few songs which I think it's, it's actually not got too bad a lyric. But um, listening, listening to how he sings it, if I were the woman who was the object of his affection, I'd be running the other way. Um, it's, 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 I'm going to crush on you! And he, he sings like, um, you know, I, I'd be wanting to get a Rottweiler and a bodyguard for protection. But, um, uh, you know, he, he sings, you know, some of the lyrics actually don't, you know, that actually work reasonably well. I know a secret everybody tell who goes to heaven, who goes to hell. I know one thing for sure is true, I've never kept a secret, I've got a crush on you. And he's gone and put the heaven and hell thing, but not too over the top there. And I think it's nice and simple, and, and it, you know, he shows he's passionate. But, but you know, ugh, you know, I think if he'd gone and employed his um, less menacing voice, it might have worked a little bit better for me. Um, 
But I don't know. Oh. Where do you, and, and Marianne, the song that comes after that. Whoa! Really, really intense. I'm thinking. Yeah, yeah, right. Sorry, Brian. Um, I'm scared. <laughs> I don't know if that song, Morris, crashes. Uh, I don't see it as a song about or to a particular woman. I think it's to uh, women in general. Um, and a, a whole different bunch of them, all, all in the, the different different sections of that that song. And um, I, I don't know about I don't know about you guys, but um, I mean, from what you've been saying, Morris, one question I would ask you: yep. if you're missing missing a whole lot of stuff about the lyrics that Brian Fallon uses, certainly in this album and on some of the Gaslight stuff, um, have you ever had your heart broken? Broken, ripped up, ground into small pieces, and stuffed down the sink? Um. You know, that would be overstating it, um, but, you know, I, 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 I had a, I had a uh, strong disappointment. Yeah, I mean, look, probably, this is in retrospect, you know, I'm sort of thinking, yeah, as a teenager, I had my heart broken, but, you know, from... from the, the girl wouldn't kiss you at the Christmas dance, you know. Something like that, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, yep. saying, and saying things like, you know, fuck off, creep. Uh, I mean, I was mildly disappointed, um, but um, I mean, look, obviously I haven't had my heart broken this, in the way that Brian Fallon has, but I mean, look, you know, he's not the first songwriter to write of a broken heart. I mean, I quoted Roy Orbison and um, Chris Isaac earlier, and, and uh, in maybe even more recent than that, um, I, I think you know, there's probably a circle of music fans who might say that Beck's Sea Change album is probably... Uh, among the best, if not the best, mm. heartbreak album ever. Uh, and I love that album. I love it to bits. But uh, and but there's just something about this. It, it's it's. I, I think it's Fallon's intensity um, that yeah, really that maybe maybe some people find that um, that's what attracts them. They like how intense he is. But I, I sort of I've always been one who admire light and you know like light and shade. And there's. For me, there's just no escape. I mean, musically, there's light and shade for sure, but lyrically, it's there's never a let up. Uh, and you know, as I said, if I were the object of his affection, whoa, I'd be um, I'd be running the other way. Well, I think I think I think he treats the subject. He takes the subject, takes you through all the stages you go through: the sort of the shock, the pain, the anger, the resentment, the wanting to get back at them, the name calling. The hatred, the sort of realization that well, actually, maybe I was wrong myself. Was I putting her on a pedestal? I still hate her again. I still love her. Maybe it'll be better the next time. Thanks for being in the relationship. I still hate you. You know, it just mm. goes through all those cycles. Yep. Um, which you know, I, I could, I could really, really identify with. It makes myself sound like a really sad, sad case, doesn't it? Not probably true, but you know, um, I, I don't know. I think, yeah, I think. You know, and and, and I, I don't I don't know if you're wrong or right or what. It's your opinion, and and you it's know, all subjective. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'd be interested to hear what what John's got to say. John, you still there? Yes, I am. I've, I've been very <laughs> interested. Um, so yeah, I was I was I think it was a good uh, move to get Morris to um, give us his thoughts first, and I've been you very will, interested in what you guys have been saying. You you will work with me again, won't you guys? Of course. Oh, God bless you. Um, I think just, uh, just the uh, Jeff is going to rename the site that I'm in love with that Brian Fallon album. <laughs> but anyway, 
We'll make Morris feature a different song by Brian Fallon every week. <laughs> Look, uh, I, I, under, I understand where Morris is coming from, but I, again, it's funny. Uh, it's it's an album that I haven't, um, you know, intellectualised. It's just I, and uh, and I understand. I think I think Fallon himself has been quoted to say um, this album is is his hymns for the lonely. But I guess in my you know, my initial listens, I also and I can't explain it, but I also found uh, an uplifting, um, you know, um, I guess to draw, to draw an analogy that the three of us would understand, um, the, the track, uh, Go Tell Everybody. I, I, I defy anyone that, you know, I guess listens to music. That chorus um, at the end of the album where he says, I was a man of great sympathy when I loved you, baby, but tonight all of my sympathy is gone. And he repeats that line over and over again. Mm. Yes, he uses his, his different voices, but I, I guess for me, when he uses that voice that um, Morris talked about, you know, that gargly, you know, almost Tom Waits voice, I, I, I hear that as his punk voice from, I guess, from the, you know, the very genesis of Gaslight Anthem from my favourite album of theirs, which is their very first one, Sink or Swim. And... And, and this is a question I'll put to Morris. Have you have you listened to I guess the Gaslight Anthem? Are you how familiar are you with the Gaslight Anthem albums? Because I guess what why I like this album myself is it was very different to them. Mm. That um, if I had a if, if if his solo project had been you know for want of a better word you know anthemic songs you know with um, you know the, the bit of fist waving you know above your shoulders. I would have thought, yeah, look, Brian may only have, you know, he may be a one-trick pony or he's only got one speed. But I guess um, uh, what what impressed me with this album, although I think, um, uh, and I think even Jeff uh, was the same, it didn't take, it, I didn't take to it at first. And I guess it may be, uh, and I can see, I can see where Morris is coming from. What I probably didn't like at first was some of the slower songs um, because I, I just love, the urgency that he can use, or that he uses in, you know, the Gaslight Anthem. But as I as I got more and more into the album, I really appreciated it. And I think, I guess, for reasons that we said on episode 17, why I appreciate it is that he's shown he's got a different speed, he's got a different gear, he's using some of his, um, I guess, it seems to be every act that comes out of New Jersey has a soul influence. Uh, you know, be it Springsteen himself or Southside Johnny, uh, soul seems to be infused into the, comes through the um, the fog from the swamps and gets into the young musician's nostrils and um, and and I think on this on this album I found his songwriting less uh, derivative of other people. You know, whereas I guess some of the criticisms of Gaslight Anthem and and I was going to you know ask how you guys feel about you know I guess they've been accused. And Brian is accused of, you know, wearing his influences, you know, very heavily on his sleeve. Whereas on this album, I didn't really, you know, I don't think, you know, unless I missed them, he didn't pull out lines from, you know, Springsteen songs or, you know, or Dylan songs like he did on at least the first two um, Gaslight Anthem songs. And I felt it was more of himself writing here. Whether the album coincided uh, with an event in his life that. You know, he felt he had to write a hymns to the lonely album, but as I say, my my feelings, I, I get an uplifting 
uh, vibe out of that that particularly that song. I think it's the centerpiece of the album. I think it's about track five, "Go Tell Everybody," where he actually starts back. He starts off with those punk vocals, then he eases back into his, I guess, more middle voice. Yeah, I agree completely there, John. I think that's that's one of the highlight songs for me on the on the album. And, and you you mentioned the the line about being a man of great sympathy, but tonight all my sympathy is gone. And the bit that I take from that is only tonight. Mm. It's come. It'll be back. It'll be back. And that's, I think that's the uplifting bit that you know you were you were talking about there. Um, you know, and it and it is. It's you know. To, you know, to be in a, such a position, to things that are so dark that you, all your sympathy has been taken away, it's gone. Mm. That's, that's a pretty black place. Yeah, but it's only tonight, you know. <laughs> mm. I think he's got a bit of a, a bit of a knack, a bit of a talent for for doing that, for for taking you to dark places, and you can think, yeah, God, man, I've been there. Yeah, I've got. And then eventually, you know, he he shows you that there's a way out. You know, and there is a way out, and. You know, when he's writing all these songs about all these sort of failed or messed up or broken or damaged or, you know, just bad relationships with women, we all know we're going to do it again. And so, okay, so this is giving away the fact that, um, probably in answer to your question, uh, John, uh, no, I'm not really that okay with the Gaslight Anthem apart from, you know, having heard, you know, uh, maybe two or three songs or something. I, I, I can't remember you know, who it was that sent a CD my way, and I, I listened to you know a little bit. Thought, well, I mean, I thought, yeah, this is for later. This is mm-hmm. I can't really get. I mean, okay, maybe a bit immature of me to sort of like not give it the full respectful treatment the um, the, the first time over. But I thought, no, this will. I'll get into this later, and I sort of never have. But uh, lyrically. I mean, I, can, I know musically, obviously, it's, it's different to what the Gaslight Anthem do, but lyrically, I mean, is he pursuing different subject matter here or a, a different approach to the same subject matter between Gaslight Anthem and The Horrible Crow? Well, I'll throw it to Jeff, but I, I guess my thoughts are, I think it's a very different approach to the Gaslight Anthem. I, I don't think... I mean, look, I think some of the Gaslight Anthem band members been uh, you know were used on some of the tracks but I know I, I, I think to me I, I look at this album as a as a side project to make and it's not and and you know if he does a you know a solo album if he feels the need to do a solo album in between albums I feel that he's got the capacity that the next one could you know completely different this album doesn't necessarily um, define uh, the relatively young Brian Fallon. Right. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, I don't think that uh, when the new Gaslight Anthem album comes out in uh, July, um, and it's going to be called Handwritten, um, just to get a bit of a plug in there, um, and I will be buying a copy and sending it straight to Morris. Um, <laughs> But um, I don't think when on the tour that the tour that will happen behind that, I really don't think he'll play any horrible cross songs. I really don't think he needs to, mm. um, because I think although some of the subject matter is similar, the Gaslight Anthem um, just musically treat treat it so so differently. Um, I mean, yeah, they're capable of some real some real dark songs on there too, um, and you know some of the religious imagery is in there as well. Um, 
but I, I really think that they just have a much a much lighter touch, and I think this is something that was much more personal to Fallon, um, mm. you know, which which would be maybe more difficult to share with, um, you know, the other members of the Gaslight Anthem. So would you say the Anthem are a fun band? Oh, certainly not. not. Well, the, the elements of fun. Um, and uh, if you if you'd like a starting place to, to go back and, and re-listen to the to the Gaslight Anthem, I've actually got a DVD of them from the uh, Glastonbury Festival two okay. three years ago, mm-hmm. um, featuring featuring a guest appearance by um, that Springboard fellow. Right. And, um, you know that 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 shows you just how much a how much a command again they have of, of lifting and, and lowering the crowd almost at will. But I think this was um, this was blacker this was blacker issues that Fallon wanted to, to explore for himself, um, which which maybe didn't translate to the the Gaslight Anthem, and you know maybe somewhat predictably I'll draw the parallel between um, how Nebraska didn't quite work at that time as an E Street Band album. Mm. Um, I mean, obviously since a lot of the songs have been translated into to full band numbers and worked very well. But um, you know, at that time, they tried and tried, and it, it just didn't seem to just didn't seem to come out right. Now, either Brian Fallon's been very, very, very clever in his uh, wish to be compared with Springsteen, and thought, well, I've got to have some sort of solo acoustic-y type project, um, you know. In ten years' time, he'll be trotting it out and playing arenas with uh, you know songs like um, Crush and what have you. But I doubt it. Um, but you know, I think the the, the, the two um, the two subject matters are, are are quite far apart. I mean, there's a lot of good times and a lot of um, not quite fitting in with the good times themes in the Gaslight Anthem songs. Um, whereas it, it's much more sort of in his own head in the uh, in the Horrible Crows albums. And um, I don't believe the Ian Perkins was there just to make up the numbers. Um, I think he contributes. Um, I think it's the slide guitar. I mean, a couple of the songs, which is you know really really good. That's always been an instrument that's that's just agreed with me. I don't again. I don't know why because I do hate a lot of song, a lot of work with slide guitar on it. I just you know country music. I, I, I kind of hate that kind of stuff. But um, yeah, I think it's just it, it's almost like you know two different personalities of Brian Fallon. And you know, well, hats off to him. You know, let's hope he's got he's got more creative personalities where those came from. And I think that's where I can where I can see I can see Morris coming in where he has, and I think for you and I, um, this album was refreshing because it was so different to, um, you know, three Gaslight Anthem albums. But but for me, and uh, I felt the three Gaslight Al- Anthem albums were uh, a bit of a law of diminishing returns. I, as I say, I really love that first one. And, 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 and there's nothing wrong with the 59 sound or American slang. They're very, very good. And, and there's, a, there's, a, there's an EP, I think, in between um, the first and second album that's worth checking out called Senior on the Queen. Yeah. Um, but I guess the, the thing that I've been a little bit suspicious of was the softening of their, you know, the punk, the punk aspect of their sound. And I guess, you know, I, 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 I don't know how much he cavorts you know, mainstream success. Um, they definitely have the you know the punk aesthetic and uh, and the social awareness and social commentary that comes with it. But I, I really str- I, I struggled with the Fifty Nine Sound and American Slang like I did with Elsie until I until you know quite a few listens. Whereas Sink or Swim, I found it a very honest record. Um, it, you know they were still they were still in their 
uh, North New Jersey punk persona and uh, I thought it was just a stunning album and I, I guess that's what I'm I'm just wondering I don't want them to lose uh, you know sounds silly to lose their way but I, I'd love them to hang on to that punk part of their sound and songwriting yeah I agree it'll be definitely it'll be, it'll be really interesting to see where they go with um, handwritten to see what mm. that's see what that's like I mean I'm the, I, I come at it slightly from the opposite direction from you, John. I mean, I probably remember it was you that sent me the uh, the 59 sound um, initially. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those albums, you know, when you when you put it on and the you know the first few the first few bars come yeah. out the come out the stereo and you think I like this band. Mm. It's one of those ones. So you know, I really did, and I, I really liked the 59 sound, and I struggled with sink or swim. I just couldn't. Mm. I just couldn't it's get like, it, and um, you know um, the most recent one, American Slang. I I absolutely loved that from the word go. I think that is you know that's one of my favourite albums now. If I had to do a a John Peel top fifty, you know it would be in there for me. But I mean I I absolutely cannot listen to it these days. But that's that's purely for personal reasons, which I won't go into in the podcast at the moment. But um, and, I uh, find myself back at Sink or Swim. And really appreciating that album for for what it is, um, and it, it's it's really a great great album, I think. Mm. And I see a lot more parallels between Sink or Swim and the the Horrible Crows than with either of the other two Gaslight uh, records. Um, I guess it maybe just the rawness. Yes. Um, the, the just the sort of anger almost in some you know which I guess is getting back to the sort of the punk ethos and it's funny how they talk the Americans talk about punk and, and the American idea of punk is uh, wildly different to what um, dare I say us Brits think of as punk mm. but I dare say that the early 21st century idea of punk uh, on either continent is different to what the late 1970s mm. version of punk was too yeah, I mean, I don't know. What would you rather listen to, the Ramones or the Clash, or the Anti Nowhere League, or uh, Pat Smith? You know, I mean, mm. all good, all good. Mm, mm. Yeah, well, yeah, the, the Ramones to me. Uh, yeah, uh, I had this conversation with Doctor Zom, but I think you know, we're both sort of um, of the opinion of the the Ramones, I guess, were uh, you know, more of a, a, a pop band who just happen to play their guitars very loud and very fast. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on both their songs. On both their songs. <laughs> uh, we should get into that, was it, uh, a last Smith & Jones conversation about uh, status quo. Oh, remember, remember that, what's that song that they do? Oh yeah, love that. And what about that other song, you know? The... Don't, don't knock the coal. <laughs> Fantastic live band, actually, status quo. Yeah, both, both of the songs, yeah. The fast, one, the fast one and the slow one. Jeff, do you know whether um, Fallon toured uh, around about the time of the release? Did he do any solo shows? I'm, I'm not aware of any. I'm not aware that he did tour anything around the Hotel Crows. I know he's been on the, uh, the revival tour with uh, Chuck Reagan. Yes. And, and and other guests. I don't know what he was performing on that. I've seen or heard 
very little of that. I hope on, 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 on YouTube, uh, there, there is some horrible crows live stuff, like audience taken live stuff. I mean, I don't know who the lineup, who the lineup actually there is, but there is some there is some stuff on there. That must be interesting. So I, I'm not sure if that was like a, a small number of small club shows that they were doing just about mm -hmm. the time of the album's release or whether they did a full blown tour or anything, but there is some live stuff up there. Oh, I must, uh, must check that out. I, 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 I was completely unaware of that. Um, I, I, I wanted to interject here, I know this is probably going a little bit off track from, from, from the path that you guys have been uh, setting about it, but just um, probably just to sort of like counteract with, you know, with both stuff that I, that I liked about the album with stuff I didn't like. Um, and probably the, the two songs that um, illustrate this, uh, the, 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 one follows the other one. So the song musically that I really like, and I like it so much so I can even forgive some of its lyrical allusions, is Black Betty and the Moon. I think that's just absolutely a, a, a gorgeous melody. Um, and you know, I can see, uh, so this is, uh, I guess, like what you're alluding to, Jeff, you know, a, a song of betrayal of trust. And I, I like the chorus lyric there, you know, saying, look, Black Betty, what they're, what they're um, tying to you. You did the very thing that I asked you not to do. And now you got yourself caught in this silk spider web. I hope the money fills the holes because now the roof's caving in. I love that last line in particular. Um, and because um, you were mentioning something before about um, uh, uh, Fallon's uh, strong Christian beliefs, I wonder whether that line, I hope the money fills the holes because see now the roof's caving in, has got some sort of uh, Judas's carrier illusion there or something like that. Do you, do you see that yourself or? Yeah, I think there's maybe yeah maybe a bit of a bit of an element of that. I mean, I'll, I don't know. I'll maybe read that one as more of the, the simplistic guy got dumped for the rich guy. But um, <laughs> you know, but I, I do like the I do like the way that that song winds up with it's something about you know I, I never thought I'd have to learn to doubt my friends. Yeah. Which is a, a you know very interesting line and a, a very sort of thought provoking line. Mm. Um, the the song after that. Blood loss, um, melodically. Oh, I'm a sucker for a waltz, and you know, it, it, it starts out with a, this beautiful, understated acoustic guitar. And, you know, the melody and the delivery seem you know, quite cool. Um, and you know, for once on the album, Fallon, he, he's not afraid to let his vulnerability show uh, until you listen to what he's actually singing. And this is. Probably like the nastiest song since you know uh, the police's every breath you take. Um, <laughs> uh, you know he, he sings like you know, my first love was an arsonist, black eyes, deep set and avarice, red lips built like a tomb, and then that scary line, "You'll never get out of this. Someday I'll see to this." Um, and you know it, 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 he's torturing this woman. I'll tell you when it's over. I'll tell you when you can leave. And you think, you know, this is this is Sting's character thirty years on. Uh, this is what it's led to, and and just really the the beauty of the melody at the start. Uh, it just it, it creeps the, the lyrics creep me out, and that's where he lost me. I think. I know a secret, wow. <laughs> I, I mean, have I have I got it wrong, or do you just see it as 
you know, his hurt, his, his personal pain, or is there something about that lyric that strikes you creepy? Well, I think there's something creepy in there, and I think it's maybe meant to be. I, 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 I had him uh, in my head singing from the women's point of view. Okay. Um, I mean, I, I could be completely, completely wrong, and it, that's one of the songs that lyrically some of the, the ideas in there remind me of one of the Gaslight Anthem songs a lot, which I can't get the name of the song, maybe John can help me out, it's the one about um, bleeding hard from these wounds, um, girl, girl, boys will be boys and girls have those eyes, um, and you know, that you've got to bleed from your wounds because that's what they tell you you've got to do, I can't, I just can't get the name of the song. Mm. I'm wondering whether it's great expectations, but um, not too sure. Yeah, I think, oh, yeah, I don't know. It'll come to me about 10 minutes after we finish the podcast. Mm. Well, you call me and I'll, um, I'll slot it in. <laughs> All right, so um, anything more that you wanted to um, throw in about the album? Don't jump in. <laughs> Any either of you uh, have any final thoughts on um, on the album before we go to a break? Well, I think Morris, um, the what is it, the second or second or third song, third song, "Behold the Hurricane." My love. Um, oh, oh yeah, I've got in my notes. It sounds like a, a car commercial. But it's stuck in your head, and you can sing it. Oh, yeah, definitely. I bet you can't avoid a bit of a kick. You can't avoid singing along with that one. Right, no. Look, when um, uh, a couple of uh, albums ago, uh, Ben Folds put out one of his few albums that I actively hate. Um, uh, I can't remember what it was called, but the front cover had him sitting in his pajamas on on a big estate lawn, holding an umbrella. Um, and it started out with a song called Hiroshima, and on the um, the song was actually lyrically interesting about a time where he was playing in Hiroshima. So it's not actually about World War Two. He was playing uh, live in Hiroshima, and he slipped and fell fell on stage and nearly cracked his head open. Um, but it has this um, sort of Benny and the Jets type motif. Uh, running through it, and he sings, uh, 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 and everyone on the uh, Ben Folds forum said, you know, I hate this song, and yet I can't get that damn little motif out of my head. And yeah, yeah, I know I, I completely agree with you. This is not going to leave me for better or for worse. <laughs> yeah, if I can just go back to that Gaslight Anthem song that I couldn't get. Yep. It's uh, it's from the '59 sound. Here's looking at you, kid. <sighs> The lyrics are, but boys will be boys and girls have those eyes that will cut you to ribbons sometimes. All you can do is just wait by the moon and bleed if that's what she says you ought to do. Who needs some happy times? I think I think he needs to have a beer or get laid or something, I I think that's a problem. All right, so John, any final thoughts? No, look, um, I um, very interesting. I think, as I said before, I, I think this album. I don't. I don't think it's a you know it's a representative of Brian Fallon, the solo artist. If indeed there's ever going to be a Brian Fallon, the solo artist, I just see it as a little um, you know project he did. He, he um, I think, yeah, interesting point that I think Jeff made. Um, 
Mr. Perkins, I think, was um, you know very much a. Um, I could I could detect some other male vocals on the album, and I think he was very much part of the creative process. But I just think, uh, and I think it's consistent with where he comes from. Uh, a lot I've you know learned about I guess uh, American punk of um, this decade and the past and the '90s is that they're pretty prolific as far as they put out things called split albums. You know where you know um, against me will pair um, up. Gaslight Anthem or, you know, another punk band or, and, and indeed, I think Brian Fallon's done a couple of, or done at least one or maybe even two split albums with Chuck Reagan. And I see this as, is that type of project that, you know, I, I think it's, uh, he's, he, he might have had some things on his mind that he wanted to say and, and he knew that, you know, that possibly the next Gaslight Anthem album, you know, might have been 18 months away. And I just, to me, it's just uh, a nice. Uh, there's another bow in his quiver, and um, I'm I'm going to be very interested um, in in the next Gaslight Anthem album. And I got a I, you know out of this podcast, I got a different perspective from Jeff, and I can see where you know um, some people would see you know the I guess the arc that they've had from Gaslight Anthem through. 59 sound American slang and and this album it's very much a maturing of their sound and um, yeah yeah very interesting album. Uh, I, I had a bit of a listen to it uh, early in the week and again uh, this evening not long before this podcast and um, I actually um, nothing I can articulate but I got a great sense of uh, power. And as I say, strange. It's 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 very strange to say this, um, but some sort of you know uplifting that you know I'll be okay. You know, particularly in that you know um, fifth song, go tell everybody. Uh, the analogy I was going to draw earlier, I think I went off track. Was that something like um, Springsteen, darkness on the edge of town? You know, where he's up on that hill. Um, and and that night, yeah, he hasn't got any sympathy, and it's and it's okay. Mm. So, yeah, look, at, I, I I I love to. I think Jeff and my job is to possibly um, do Morris a. Uh, we'll have to challenge Morris with a Gaslight Anthem mix CD where we can throw everything we can at Morris to try and get his attention on them. Right, be a mixture of the first few albums with some live stuff, Jeff. Yeah, definitely. And um, and I think yeah, it's when I listen to the album in in this context, you know, I, I think uh, yeah, it's a he's Lady Soul Bear, um, and uh, you know, pretty brave artistically, and probably a little bit more of his own voice. All right. Well, um, at that point, we'll conclude our discussion of um, uh, the horrible crows, Elsie. Not. Um, as we've been joking around in our emails, not the counting or the black crows or indeed the Adelaide crows, um, but uh, the horrible crows and their album called um, um, Eloise, was it? Something like that. Something like that, yeah. Um, all right, so we're going to go to a bit of a break uh, now. Uh, when we come back, um, the uh, now regular segment, and I'm calling it a segment because we've even got an intro for it, from uh, Eric Reanimator, uh, his segment, An Album I Love, 
And uh, on today's show, he'll be talking a bit about the Screaming Trees album Dust, but that'll be uh, taking place after this break. So, um, uh, yeah, we'll be back after Eric's segment. This is uh, Morris, John and Jeff. You're listening to Love That Album. Uh, we'll be back shortly. This is a great John Film from the Girls on Film Radio. Are you tired of all those vegetarian or vegan podcasts? We just listened to what the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema had to say about the Girls on Film Radio. A lot of good meat in there. There's a lot of good meat in there uh, that the girls talk about. You guys got a lot of nice meat over there at the podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. So there you have it. The Meaty Film Discussion by Meaty Women. Listen to Girls on Film Radio. Girlsonfilm.podomatic.com Take it away, Eric, the orchestra leader. I want two, I want two, three, four. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Now it's time for an album I love with Eric Reanimator. La-dee-dee, a one, two, three, Eric the Reanimator. She wears a halo of ashes, specter on the wind, waits on me. Greetings, love that album podcast. This is Eric Reanimator here, back to talk about another album that I love. Today's album is the 1996 grunge requiem, Dust by the Screaming Trees. Screaming Trees were one of the original members of the quote-unquote Seattle scene. They had moved from Ellensburg, Washington to Seattle sometime in the late 80s. As with so many of the bands I tend to like, the Screaming Trees started off as a punk band. And I think it's important to note that a lot of people start in punk bands because they're just trying to make a noise. They're trying to write songs. They're trying to be something, to create something. And as time goes on, they refine their skills, they learn what they're doing, and they find their sound. In the case of the Screaming Trees, their sound was a psychedelic, swirling, alternative rock sound. However, towards the end, with the album Dust, there's a definite shift towards Roots Rock, which should not be surprising to anybody who has followed the careers of the former members of the Screaming Trees, especially lead singer Mark Lanigan, who has become a kind of roots rock guy. He's done uh, some bluesy stuff and some gospel-y stuff and some folk-type stuff. And then there is also original drummer Mark Pickerel, who was had left the band by the point the dust was recorded, has released several albums, first under the name The Dark Fantastic, but more recently under the name Mark Pickerel and His Praying Hands. Those last two albums 
have been much more roots rock cow punky. So back to Dust. I consider it to be the last hurrah of the Seattle scene. Sure, there were other albums that came after, but I don't think anybody really had much to say beyond what was said on Dust. And I think it's important to look at Dust through something that David Bowie said in Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars, which is five years. You get five years. So 96 would have been five years down the road from the great grunge explosion. Sure, grunge had been occurring before, or I should say the Seattle scene had been occurring before 1991, but 91 was that commercial breakthrough. Very much with Dust, the band was looking back at what had happened in their lives and to the lives of their friends in the last five years. They were seeing the door shut. Cobain was gone, Pearl Jam had gone way off the track of where they had been. Soundgarden was imploding, as was Alice in Chains. And the Screaming Trees themselves. They had recorded an album and then scrapped it. And then finally they had come back and recorded Dust. Well, let's take a pause here and listen to some of the music from the album. Like I said, it is very much more roots rocky than the earlier stuff. At the same time, there is a good amount of straight up rock and roll and alternative. So let's take a listen. sample of the uh, sound of the album. Let me just say that this is an album that I would love to own on LP. Maybe a nice 180 gram vinyl with uh, excellent liner notes and the download and all that fun stuff. Anyways, um, like any good requiem or a funeral or memorial service, the album actually ends with a gospel song. It's called Gospel Plow, and we're going to go out today with a little bit of that. Uh, this has been Eric Reanimator, an album I love. Talk to everybody oh, later. Mary had a golden chain. Hold on.
Thanks once again for another great segment, Eric, and uh, uh, glad that you're a regular part of the show now. Um, we'll be looking forward to see what Eric has uh, on the next show in a couple of weeks. Um, and yeah, so The Screaming Trees, Dust. Um, I have uh, an album of theirs called Ocean of Confusion, which is um, a compilation of the latter part of their career. Um, I believe like the early stuff is uh, a little bit more punky, a little bit more hardcore. Uh, but they, as they went on, they, um, uh, I, I guess they're, you know, as Eric said, affiliated with the uh, grunge scene in Seattle. But um, as the music on this compilation that I have seems to indicate, and certainly from the examples that uh, Eric played off Dust, they struck me as being uh, having a few more pop sensibilities. Um, and certainly they uh, ventured, as did Mark Lanigan, uh, in um, some Americana leanings. Um, uh, but yeah, I, I can't ever say that I really um, uh, went so much with the whole grunge scene, and yet I really like uh, at least what I've heard of The Screaming Trees from this compilation, and it's a good representation of about their last three or four albums. So... Um, uh, yeah, they've got, uh, Mark Lanigan himself has a new album out called Funeral Blues, I think. Um, and that's, he's taken a step away from the, uh, Americana thing. And I was speaking to, um, uh, Pat Monahan at, uh, Basement Discs here in Melbourne asking him his opinion of the new Lanigan album. And I think he indicated it was something like, uh, you know, if a band was to make a bit of a cross with, uh, uh, techno stylings, not so much because of, uh, that the album is techno, but more the, the, the punchiness of, uh, techno. So uh, it'll be interesting to hear what Funeral Blues actually does sound like, but it, it is taking a bit of a step away from his more recent country and soul and Americana type leanings. Um, John, you're indicating that you had, uh, you'd heard a little bit of, uh, Lanigan. Yeah, look, I, 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 like you, I probably, I didn't really, I may have only really got into the tail end of the grunge scene, um, but um, I, I, someone sent me a couple of live shows of Mark Lanigan over the last few years, and I read with I'm, I'm always I'm always I guess I'm always on the lookout for for people that have I, I seem to have a fascination with people that have been in bands and have gone solo. I I, I like that artistic jump, and uh, I toyed with getting the new Mark Lanigan album, but I was a little bit scared off by i wasn't too sure how overtly it was a blues album i i you know i, I know the title uh, so i'm probably not a i'm not a big fan of um you know i love blues elements like anyone in their music but if it's if it's straight ahead blues i get uh, the impression it's not no okay that's good and, and i had heard i had read um i think i read it in the drum media here in sydney that there was a techno element and is is mark lanigan did he do at least two or three so, um, duet albums or duo albums with uh, Isabel Campbell from yes, Bell Sebastian. Yes he, yes, he did, yes. 
and 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 it's funny i've i've seen those albums in the um used record or used cd shops and and i've had them in my hand a couple of times and then something has said something's made me put them down but i've i've um i guess i've uh, what I was, why I was nearly going to pick them up was I was interested in, you know, this, um, he's got a pretty deep, gruff voice and this, um, you know, uh, quite sweet voiced, um, young lady from Bell and Sebastian. But yeah, I, Screaming Trees, uh, I know of the name and I know they're revered in the grunge scene, but, um, yeah, I've, I've, I'm, I'm interested in Mark Manningham without uh, have ever really taken the leap. Okay. Well, um, all right. So uh, I think we'll we'll make the uh, next bit of feedback now. Um, now I've, I've received um, an email from a fellow who I've not heard from before, but uh, welcome on board. His name is uh, uh, Tom, uh, and he does a podcast called Better in the Dark, um, which I haven't heard till now. But um, I'm going to have to uh, give this a bit of a uh, bit of a look. So um, Tom has gone and written, uh, and you'll be interested in a lot of this, Jeff. Um, he says, Morris, I discovered your podcast from the promo on, I think, Chinstroker versus Punter, um, which is a bit unusual because I don't think I've actually um, listened to Chinstroker versus Punter. Thank you very much if you're promoting the show, but I, um, I don't think I've sent you a, a, a promo, but um, good on you. Thanks very much. I'll have to listen to you too. Anyway, yeah, I discovered your podcast on the promo on, I think, Chin Straker versus Punter, and I've been enjoying it, especially since I haven't understood why no one had tried to do an in-depth analysis podcast for albums the way people do for movies, and I appreciate that our musical tastes are similar, even if there are divergences. Now, here's a bit that you'll like, Jeff. Uh, yeah. while, while these days my opinion of Billy Joel is rather dim, I find his body of work kind of cynical, the message that... Of, uh, of most songs being It's Not My Fault, a slightly fuller explanation of why I find him cringeworthy can be found at uh, http singalongscriptures.blogspot.com um, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, So I will always stand beside my contention that The Stranger is one of the best, most consistent pop albums of all time. That collection contains three of my favourite songs of his, the Stranger, Vienna, and Scenes from an Italian Restaurant. Only Miami 2015 comes close from any of his other albums. And is one I enjoy over and over and over again. While he reaches these heights on spots a couple of times after a song or two on 52nd Street, most of Glass Houses and spots on Nylon Curtain, that is him at the height of his musical power. Even if he stopped recording after it, this would still be one of the crown jewels of 70s pop. And as a fan of song story writers, Warren Zevon taught me more about short story writing than any writer save Harlan Ellison. I love how many of the strangers' songs take uh, tales evolve in stories themselves. Scenes is a little short story collection in and of itself. I also incidentally appreciated the words on Greg Ham. I did like Men at Work and did consider them a very good power pop band and it frustrated me so much that I had to actually explain who Men at Work and Ham were to most people when I brought his death up. I'm very much looking forward to hearing what you say about Ben Folds, one of my favourite artists, period, and one I would contend is much deeper than Billy Joel with a potty mouth and some of my other faves. Keep up the good work, Tom. From And he's uh, signs out that he... Uh, uh, does better in the dark. 
which is he describes as two guys out of Brooklyn talk movies and DJ Comics Cavalcade, Silver Age comics through modern eyes. Uh, Tom and Walter Bonham tackle the comic book issues of the day at Burning Comics. Um, so thank you very much for that, Tom. Uh, since he wrote me that email, Tom and I have uh, had a couple of uh, uh, email correspondences and um, sometime, I think in June, we're going to be uh, doing a Love That Album together, talking about Ben Fold's um, album, or Ben Fold's five album, uh, the unauthorized biography of Reinhold Mesner. Uh, now, I think late last year, uh, Ben Folds put together an anthology of, um, of, uh, songs. The first one being like a straight ahead best of, then there was a, a best of live material. And then the third album was like rarities of material from the Folds five days and his own solo stuff. And what I found very exciting about that collection was there were uh, three new Ben Folds Five songs. And just looking at um, Tom's uh, latest entry into the Sing Along Scriptures uh, blog, he has um, a bit of the, the exciting news for me anyway, that there is going to be an all new Ben Folds Five album. Um, so, I mean, any Folds uh, music um, is usually an exciting thing for me, but the fact that he's getting together with uh, um, Robert and Darren to make a new Ben Folds Five album, I think is just really very very exciting news. So if you, uh, but in general, um, the uh, I've had a read through a whole lot of the uh, articles that um, Tom has written on his Sing Along Scriptures uh, blog site, and I think it's just a really fantastically well written site um, on his thoughts on uh, various pop artists. So uh, I urge you, uh, anyone who listens to um, this show, to uh, go to Tom's uh, blog site. The web website is http uh, forward slash singalongscriptures, it's all one word, dot blogspot.com. Um, and um, you'll, yeah, I, I, I look forward to uh, any feedback, see what uh, you guys have to say. And he's um, uh, got you know a lot of artists who I, don't know about and a lot of artists that I do so um, yeah he's written things obviously well Ben Foles is a big thing for me um, uh, I must say Morris you must be really 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 pleased I, I am really 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 pleased yeah you found the other Billy Joel fan uh, so, <laughs> you mean besides yourself come on you know go on I know you want to admit it the inner Joel fan in you is deathly excited how many times did you listen to the podcast there, Jeff. Um, <laughs> so he, he, but um, no, he's uh, he's got a really well written uh, website there. Um, whole whole bunch of acts here. So you know, Godly and Cream for crying out loud. Um, I, I haven't read that one yet. I'm really looking forward to reading what he has to say about that. Uh, the Happy Mondays. Uh, Howard Jones. My goodness. Haven't heard anything from him in, in years. Someone who remembers him. Michael Stipe. Um, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff. Just general stuff on Scar. Uh, Tenacious D. That will be interesting. The Beastie Boys, which I think might have been written uh, prior to um, to the death of, uh, of Mike Yauch. Is that how it's pronounced? Um, so anyway, I, I urge you to go uh, read, uh, look up Sing Along Scriptures. 
from uh, from Tom. Um, so uh, yeah, looking forward to him joining me to uh, talk about Ben Folds in a, a few episodes from now. So thanks very much, Tom, for uh, for writing to the show. Uh, so I think that's all the feedback that I had this time around. Um, either of you two guys want to uh, have something to say before I um, give uh, my uh, my cheerios to uh, fellow podcasters? Well, just a quick plug. Um, I, I read with interest, um, Jeff had a pretty golden period where he saw um, three great acts in, in a week, and I think he even saw one of them twice. Yeah. Um, I don't get out as much, but uh, on um, Anzac Day um, evening, I actually uh, went to see an artist I hadn't seen since uh, 1998, and it was uh, Henry Rollins. Ah, yeah, wow. spoken word tour. Now, have you seen Rollins in uh, musical guys? Yes. Look, I tried my hardest. I think it was in look Black Fla Black Flag. I was too scared, and I think I. <laughs> experimented with the Rollins band, and and at the point when my when I could when my ears started to bleed, I thought I I better stop. <laughs> but um, an incredible um, engaging um, presence. He spoke for two and a half hours, wow. and he said to himself at the end of the show, he didn't he didn't stop, for, pause for breath, or sip a. There wasn't a glass of water anywhere near, you know, the um, black stage. He was all in black. And there's no script. It's a stream of consciousness. Um, you know, it, it ranges from his view on politics. Uh, he's traveling around the world and he seems to have a, um, you know, a musicologist, uh, appreciation. You know, he talks about old jazz artists and blues artists, uh, you know, with an incredible passion. And, um, yeah, uh, highly recommended. Okay, he, he strikes me like from you know, the bits that I've seen. He's also a very funny guy. Yes, uh, I mean it was part of the. It seemed an odd mix. It was part of the Sydney Comedy Festival, and you know he's definitely not a stand-up comedian, but yes, he can be very, very funny. Um, but um, interesting, he's been doing this spoken word thing for twenty-five years, and um, this tour, which was called the Long March, was his thirtieth time to, uh, that he's visited Australia. Wow, I, I knew he'd been here a lot, but uh, yeah. I didn't realise that. Uh, he's an interesting character, you know. Um, I don't think he's married, or you know, I don't, I don't even know whether he's in a relationship. He doesn't seem to have time. He, he just, he literally, and he said this in his um, show that he just loves to travel, and um, uh, he, he talked about uh, visiting uh, North Korea, which was a visa that even, even with his connections, it took him years to get, and. Um, in and around India, and it just seems to be seems to be on a never-ending quest around the planet. Mm. And um, you know, he, uh, as I say, yeah, musically, um, you know, he, he very, you know, he came from a very dangerous, you know, I guess they were punk, uh, Black Flag, but uh, it just seems it just seems you know incredible that this you know punk rocker is these. So did he did he say at any stage throughout his show what he actually thinks about the uh, you know, current crop, you know, the twenty first century definition of punk? No, he didn't. But he he, he actually had a, a, a and I, I wish he had gone on with it a bit more. But he had a little. I mean, he has he has many. You know, he goes down many um, 
side side alleys in his um i guess his stream of consciousness thoughts but he he was talking about his own age he's he's just turned 51 and how very few rockers uh can seem to be able to uh remain dignified at uh you know as they get into older age and uh and, and you know i was hoping he might talk about bruce or dylan but he, he said you know neil young still looks cool mm. to him Neil Young was the epitome of someone that, uh, you know, has, has retained it. And, um, but, you know, he, he, um, cited the Rolling Stones, even though he appreciates them, but feels that they're someone that they look like, you know, old men singing. I can't know, get no satisfaction. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, uh, that was the, that was the example he used. So yeah, very interesting. Um, yeah, very, very, um, motivating sort of guy. Mm. Uh, look, I think I tried listening to uh, some Rollins band stuff maybe 20 years ago. Um, I appreciate it from a technical perspective, but yeah, I think I found it a bit hard going. But yeah, I have a lot of respect for the guy. Um, actually, you mentioned Neil Young in there. Um, have either of you heard the... Um, uh, uh, the, the I think the, well, there's going to be a new Neil Young album out in the next... Which would you believe as recently as last night? Uh, like I, um, I yawned a bit when I, I went, oh, now, now, now you're, Neil Young's doing it, yeah. But when I heard the version of Oh Susanna, yes, my God, <laughs> this is this is not um, him, him taking out the banjo. This is this is pretty ragged. Yeah, it was um, Oh Susanna um, via Crazy Horse. Um, and you know, with a B A N J O on his knee, yeah, yeah, thing. So yeah, look, I, I, I was very cynical, or not cynical, because you know, I, I, I admire Neil Young as someone that will, you know, he tries many different things, but um, this this one could be interesting. Once a whole album comes out, it'll be interesting to see whether or not um, it was a novelty or um, or or, uh, um, uh, or or whether um, it actually has some merit. All right. Look, um, uh, I think Jeff has to um, has to vacate it at this stage. I've got about another minute or two to talk, but Jeff, if you uh, need to drop off, yeah, I need to get to bed. I've got to get up at about three o'clock in the morning and fly to Sydney. Oh Christ! Yeah. Uh, oh, I'll give uh, give Sin City my love. Um, all right. Uh, Thank you, Jeff. Thanks, mate. I look forward to talking to you both soon about another album. Cheers. We'll definitely do. All right, um, uh, we're not going to be on much longer. I just want to basically give um, uh, a shout out to the other podcasters who've, um, uh, who, who I really enjoy their shows and have given my show a lot of support. Uh, so uh, we'll start off with uh, Terry Frost, Melbourne guy, who does um, the excellent Paleo Cinema Show. And as I talk today, was um, uh, he's gone and released the first edition of his new podcast. This is a show called The Martian Drive-In, and Terry's going to be alternating between doing Paleo Cinema once a month and The Martian Drive-In once a month, so every two weeks a different one. Um, and The Martian Drive-In, as its name implies, is going to deal more with, um, uh, I guess, more sci-fi movies. But unlike uh, uh, paleo cinema, which um, I think is modus operandi, is you know nothing, nothing under twenty years old, and more often than not, it tends to be nowadays a lot of uh, 
50s and 60s sort of stuff. But um, I think for uh, the sci-fi show, for the Martian Drive-In podcast, he's uh, it's open slather, just anything that he finds interesting from any part in filmic history. So um, I'm looking forward to downloading and listening to the new uh, edition of uh, the, uh, uh, well, the first episode of the Martian Drive-In. So uh, congratulations, Terry, on uh, having your new podcast. Look forward to listening to it. Uh, Dr. Zom and Piccolo over at Silver and Gold. Um, and as we're recording this show, their next episode is going to um, cover uh, a couple of films that I actually asked them to do, which I'm very excited about, In the Soup and Harold and Maud, the theme being relationships with uh, with the elderly. Uh, so um, I'm looking forward to um, listening to what they have to say about that, and I hope that they don't hate the movies, otherwise they'll never listen to me again. Um, the Mondo Film and Video Guide, uh, Justin Bozong, I think is just about on track to finally release his um, uh, long-called-for episodes about Jerry Lewis and uh, that show, which had to be... Um, sidelined for a little while i think is about to come back on track he uh, had a few issues um that forced him to put that to the side but um he's coming back with a vengeance so i'm looking forward to that and apparently he's going to be doing um uh, another podcast as well as that one which will cover music as well as film it's called um ass to ass or uh, if you're american ass to ass so um if you're uh, outside of australia uh, if you're in America or Canada, you can correct me on my pronunciation of that. But either way, ass to ass or ass to ass, I look forward to hearing what Justin has to do with that. Uh, and the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. Uh, this week they're uh, actually going to go quite recent. They're going to be talking, uh, I think, about uh, 2011's Drive, which is a film I absolutely adore. Uh, looking forward to hearing what they have to say about that. I know that they love it too. But it'd be interesting to hear how they expound on it at length. Was that a film that you got to see, John? I did. I actually went, uh, saw it at the cinema. And and did you enjoy it? Very much so. Mm. Um, very, um, you know, explicitly violent. But um, I loved... Um, um, was it Ryan Gosling, wasn't it? Yes, yes, yes. it was. Um, um, I guess he was, you know, I loved his, you know, I know every critic said it, but... I, I just felt uh, Steve McQueen circa bullet. Yes, that that was uh, put around a lot, and I think it's also uh, been compared to um, uh, another film called The Driver, which I haven't seen. No, of it, the mid mid seventies. Yes, and I and I, I can't. I, if I've seen it, it was it's many years ago. Mm. Yeah, I, I enjoyed Drive. I think a lot of people even put it up into the. Um, year-end uh, best of 2011 that got a lot of people's top uh, one or two or three. Well, look, this is where I'm so grateful for podcasts because, you know, if I would have just seen the ad in the newspaper, I would have thought, oh, yeah, another car film, ho-hum, not for me. Mm -hmm. But listening to um, shows like Silver and Gold and The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight <laughs> Cinema, uh, I realised there was something very different from that. So um, I'm grateful for them to, uh, to them for a uh, uh, putting me onto that film, and it'll be really interesting to hear what um, uh, Sammy and, and uh, Big William um, have to say in a more lengthy, uh, in a more lengthy way, devoting a, a whole show to it. So um, good on you guys. Looking forward. I think that's going to be episode one hundred and eighty-three. Not too far before uh, we get the two uh, hundredth episode. That's um, going to be something quite exciting. Um, so uh, who else? Uh, sitting in a bar in Adelaide. Michael Persh, my uh, good friend and compatriot, 
uh, from Adelaide, who um, uh, you know, fellow drummer, works for the same big uh, company, big conglomerate. Um, so we have all these things in common, and uh, he's going great guns. He's uh, past the 300th episode now, um, and uh, still going great guns. And uh, another guy, very very passionate about uh, music, um, but you know the big guys and uh, the the new guys on the block. Um, he'll he'll speak and listen to uh, anyone that interests him. Um, so some fantastic shows so good on you michael uh sitting in a bar in adelaide i recommend that you check that one out if you haven't done so already and the uh, final shout out i want to give to uh, the fellows and uh fellettes uh, is that is that correct saying using that terminology i don't know the people at the list podcast um or it's addictive listening they pick a topic every week uh and they talk about their top five related to that topic being their uh, top five uh, drummers, their top five Christmas songs. Um, it's it's really addictive listening, and because there's four of them, they're very diverse in their tastes. And uh, I'm very excited that uh, Ricardo from the list will be recording with me next week. It won't be a, a, another couple of weeks before we actually put it on air, but uh, Ricardo will be recording uh, a Love That Album show with me in um, in the next week. I don't want to say what it is. Um, we'll leave that till um, I put it on air, uh, but it'll be uh, really exciting that he'll be uh, with me. And um, uh, even more exciting for me is that I've been invited to do a uh, top five show on the list sometime in uh, the next month or so. So uh, really looking forward to being part of that. Um, I think that's about it. If I've forgotten anyone, um, write and let me know and uh, I'll uh, mention you next time around. But I think that pretty much covers it. Um, any final words from you, John? No, I'm, I'm, thank you for the opportunity, Morris. All right, excellent. Uh, we'll have to uh, do some talking about what our next uh, show will be, uh, the three of us. Um, I'm sure that as we speak right now, uh, Jeff, I'm immensely grateful. I didn't even know he had to be uh, uh, up so early. So uh, all the more grateful to him for uh, joining us and expanding on the horrible crows now that he's off air and can't fight back um he did tell me that really it's all an act and that he loves billy joel um <laughs> with every ounce of his being so uh good on you good on you jeff thanks nice to know um all right so uh until we uh next meet uh listener out there um thanks for uh, downloading and listening thanks very much to you john for uh, being a part of this episode look forward to whatever our next one will be Thank you, Morris. And, um, uh, yep, that uh, concludes this episode. So um, start listening to uh, some great records or CDs or whatever it is, however it is that you listen to your music out there, listener. Um, watch some great films, read some fantastic books, and uh, we'll catch you in a couple of weeks on the next episode of Love That Album. Cheers. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. 
and why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 